welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Turn the Page, the podcast of Syosset Library. Uh, my name is Barney Leventino, and today I am really, really happy to welcome our guest, uh, international best-selling author Jonathan Kellerman. Jonathan, welcome. It's a pleasure to be here, Barney. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, the newest book is a new entry in the Alex Delaware series. The title is Unnatural History. And Jonathan, if you want to just give us a brief uh, talk about what it is and what's up to up with Alex at the moment. You know, I, I generally don't talk about the books because I feel I like to for them to stand on their own. But uh, the Delaware series, to my knowledge, is the longest running, certainly American, possibly longest running crime series ever. It's been going since 1985. I'm not sure what what number this is, 38, 39, 40, but uh so people who are familiar with the series know that it's basically there are two main protagonists, psychologist Alex Delaware and homicide cop Milo Sturgis. Um, I don't want to even talk about themes because I really feel the books need to speak for themselves. But what I attempt to do in this series, you're always walking a thin line in the sense that you want your loyal readers who've been with you for almost 40 years to feel a sense of what I call the the comfort of the familiar. They can walk in, oh, here we are again with Sherlock Holmes, you know, and, and Dr. Watson. On the other hand, I want a new reader to be able to step in at any book, at any point in the series and pick it up and read it just like a book. So that's what I've been trying to do since 1985. <laughs> and and that, that's a perfect segue to one of the first notes that I have here. And uh, I put a note here. I said, full disclosure, I am new to the series. Oh, great. Uh, this this is the first Alex Delaware book that I've read, and I've I've gone into other series uh, late in the in in the game, and some authors uh, try to, in fact, all of them, and you yourself as well, try to um, interject a little bit of the backstory and the history of the characters. Sometimes it's a little bit clumsy, and you can tell where it's happening. But I have to say that this really was seamless. Uh, having come right into the series now, I got to know a little bit about the relationships between Alex and Milo and, and some of the other characters in the, in the series. So in that regard, yeah, it works for somebody coming in fresh, uh, to the, uh, to the series. I will tell you, I will go back to the beginning and I will work my way through because it's, 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 it, <laughs> this it, is what it's we, interesting. It's interesting like and it caught me. You know, it's it's interesting. I think the way you do it, first, there are several things. First of all, have high standards. Uh, I'm very, very pleased that this, I've written close to 60 books, and and this book has garnered these great reviews. And, I, you know, if if you can still do, do that after writing for so many years, and I think the way you do it is you don't phone it in. If you're engaged with your story, then your readers are going to be. If it keeps you up at night, it will keep them up at night. So um, I'm a I agree with David Mamet. There's this artificial separation that people make between story and character as if characterization is something that operates on its own and story is something that operates on on 
on its own. And Mamet says, it's all story. And I agree with him 100%. It has to be part of the story. So any disclosure about a character has to be seamless, has to be part of the narrative. And I try never to, to break up the narrative. I try to keep it interesting. Fiction is about surprises. I like to surprise myself as well as my reader. I, writing a, a novel for me is a, is, is a one-year experience. But half of that time is taken up by plotting and planning and outlining. That said, once I do a chapter-by-chapter chapter outline, I will often go back and read the finished book, and it's a totally different book. So I'm a bit surprised. Characters I thought would turn out one way have talked to me and convinced me that I was wrong, <laughs> and they want to do a different thing. So it's a combination of structure and, and spontaneity. And, you know, people talk about left, left brain and right brain. The guy who developed the concept was a psychologist named Robert Ornstein at Stanford. He greatly regrets creating that concept because it's it's fallacious. The fact that you have two separate brains, basically you have integration between the two hemispheres. There's a little little bit of fiber called the corpus callosum, and that's the that's the bridge. So when you write a novel, I've always been impressed that it involves what we think of in a cliche sense, left brain stuff, which is spelling, grammar, order, organization, logic. And then this whole other thing of spontaneity and creativity and making stuff up. And I always say I'm getting paid very well to do what got me in trouble in school, which is spacing out in class and making, and making up stories. So, so I think that's what I love about this job because it involves so many different things. And if you stick with story and you try to keep the story moving, then I think you can avoid the clunkiness as opposed to arbitrarily saying, and by the way, you know, I hate a book where it says, you know, the sheriff of Nottingham stood on the hill in Devonshire and looked out, you know, and they, you don't plot tell. It has to be part of the story. It has to be smooth. You know, something that I get to do uh, in, in my job and it, are these podcasts and I get to speak to, to authors of uh, a lot of different genres, and and I talk to them about their approach and their process. And some tell me, and I don't know that I believe them completely, that they sit down with a blank sheet and they start writing, and the story just flows. They don't know where it's going. Then I speak to others who are telling me that they sit down. They plot it all out, almost on index cards, the way we used to write term papers, and start yeah. shuffling the cards. And basically, by the time the cards are lined up, the story's done, and then it's just fill in the blanks. I, I kind of think it's probably somewhere in between. So for you, when you start actually writing, do you know precisely where it's going, or do things sometimes kind of take a twist and say, you know what, maybe I got to go in this direction to tell the story that I want to tell? Well, it's it's the latter. I mean, I think I know because I've worked for a half a year thinking and jotting and writing and and then ending with a chapter by chapter outline, pacing it all out. And, and what that does is gives me confidence. It's like um, building a house. You need framework. You can't just decorate. The, the outline, the plot is framework. If you just decorate, it falls apart. So I think I know, but as I mentioned, I surprise myself. I change things, and that's the fun of it. And I find that what stimulates me to write is the act of sitting down and typing. 
Uh, people say, well, you must have, you know, a beautiful view of your office. I said, I could write in a closet. If, if, if you're one of these twisted guys like me and Steve King and Dean Coons, we just have this ability to think of this crazy stuff. And we also have the discipline to treat it like a job. People are always saying, where do you get, get your ideas? Ideas are nonsense. Anyone has ideas. I used to be sarcastic and say, I got them at Sears. But Sears is no longer around. Yeah, unfortunately. Costco, you know. The, the truth is, it's all in the brain. It's all here. But converting an idea or several to a novel is this monumental task that I really love. So I, um, there are people who don't use an outline. Uh, I, Elmer Leonard didn't. I know that Bob Parker didn't. I do. My wife does. My son does. A lot of people do. I just find that it helps me and gives me confidence. Perhaps as a result of that, I have never experienced writer's block ever, not once. I might write stuff I don't like, but I, but I have the confidence to know that I can rewrite it the next day. They asked the late Bob, Bob Parker, who created the Spencer Shares, and I love it. He was great. He said, Mr. Parker, what do you think about writer's block? He says, when you call a plumber, does he say, I can't come because I have plumber's block? So those of us who've been doing this for a long time, it's not that we, we, de we, we, we degrade it, but we treat it like a job, and we're professional about it. I had another job before I did this. I was a psychologist and a medical school professor. So I was used to structure and discipline. And I think those of us who have that structure and discipline have a big edge. I spoke recently also to an author who uh, is a journalist and has worked as an editor. And, and he was talking about his process. And also the subject of writer's block came up. And he said, in my world, it can't yeah. happen. In my world, the, the editor says, go out. Find out what's going on, and I need, you know, I need a column on it tomorrow. Exactly. And to go back, to go back to his editor and say, you know what, I, I'm not, I'm just not feeling it. The muse is not there. He said, I, I'd be out of a job in, in two minutes. Exactly. His, exactly. He said, you know what, I can sit down. I have a deadline. I can write the book in six months if I need to, That's because what I know That's, I've got to get it done. It's being a pro. It's being a pro. 100%. And then we have other authors who are decades behind where they they think they need to be without being specific but it's you just know, I, I mean everyone has a different process i'm not putting anyone else down i can just talk about my own process but the people that i know who've done what i've done which has been consistently writing fiction for 35 40 years we all share that same ability ruth rendell pd james steve king Dean coons all these people they they have that ability to first of all come up with a lot of cool cool stuff. And second of all, I can't speak for the others, but I try not to take myself too seriously. You know, Hollywood always portrays, I always get a kick out of this. The writer is always, he's sitting with his feet up on a balcony in some airy and he's looking out and there's a gorgeous woman and blah, blah, blah. That's a lot of bullshit. I mean, the basic thing is you sit, it's your job and you love it and you don't take yourself seriously. I never call it a career. It's a job. And when I was a med school professor, when I was a psychologist, it was a job. I'm, I'm a really big believer in work ethic. People think, oh, you know, you just, it just comes to you. Like, for example, I do other things too. I play guitar. I've been playing for 60 plus years. I'm fairly decent at it. And, I, and the thing I do best is really painting and drawing. I, you know, you talk about journalism. I worked on the UCLA paper. I was the cartoonist for four years. Something that I could always do. And people will come and say, oh, look at John's paintings. And Faye, my wife says, you don't understand. He will sit for hours and hours and hours and hours working on this, refining it. You need, they once did a study and they were 
they were doing a comparison between violinists who play in orchestras and soloists like Perlman. What's the difference? They're all very talented. They're gifted people. And they found the crucial difference was the soloists had the ability to practice for six, seven hours a day. You know, so it, there's a hard work. I mean, I, I just want to keep emphasizing that it's hard work. But if you like it, it's OK. Yeah. From the outside, uh, looking in and again, people think about, oh, what a great job that would be. What, what yeah. fun it would be to be a writer. As it a, is. A, as a career, to make a living doing that. And yeah. um, I, I draw the comparison to to my wife who grew up, uh, her, her father was a was a chef and they grew up in the restaurant business. And I said, oh, you know, that would be great. That really looks like a lot of fun running a restaurant. And she looked at me and said, you're out of your mind. And, yeah. and, and it's just from, again, from the outside, it looks like a lot of fun, but you... Yeah you lose the notion that, yeah, this is indeed a job. You need to be disciplined. You need to work at it and you have to approach it every day. I mean, I don't know what your approach is. I know some people tell me that they, they wake up and they know they're going to write from eight 30 until 1230. They're going to break for lunch. Then they're going to go back to it for another, another four hours and put in their eight hours a day. I'm a little less structured than I used to be in the early days uh, I was in full-time practice as a psychologist, and I had the biggest child psych practice in Los Angeles. I had three or four people working for me, and we, I was busy all the time. So my writing time, and this includes the years when I was a failed writer, but it also includes my first five published novels, all bestsellers. I was in full-time practice from 85 through, through 90. My writing time was 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. in an unfinished garage. Now, I have nice offices and... I can do what I want. I prefer to write in the morning, but if it doesn't work out, I'll come in the afternoon. I'm a little freer uh, because there's no pressure. There's no rush. The kids are out of the house. It's just Faye and myself and our dog, who I call the fifth child who doesn't talk back. And uh, so life is, is quite a bit more mellow than when we were raising four children with two working writers. But I do have fun. That's the thing. You have fun. You enjoy it. I mean, Perlman loves playing the violin. Musicians love playing playing music. Painters love painting. I, the other thing is that Hollywood promulgates this notion of the tortured writer who's just suffering and cutting his wrist. Yes, that does exist. But I think in many ways, life imitates art. People study these movies and they feel they, they, they need to be this guy who's suffering in a garret. There's no nobility to suffering. You try to avoid it. You have one life. Try not to suffer, okay? Sometimes you have to suffer. There's, There are no, you know, I had cancer when I was 39. Sometimes you have to suffer. But you try to avoid it. There's no nobility in it. And this whole victimhood, this woke stuff, I mean, it's just forget it. Forget the snowflakes. Hardworking people are going to do well. But you should have fun. If you're, it is a great job, the best job in the world. When I was a psychologist, every every 45 minutes of my life, five days a week was booked for months. Now I have freedom and that's what I really, really like. You've been writing this character now for however many years, went to book number 38, I believe. Yeah. How or whether has it your approach to Alex Delaware, how has it changed? How has he changed along the way for you? You know, I really don't know because I don't go back and read the old books. My son, who was also a, a published bestseller with six or seven books of his own and a playwriting award before we started to collaborate, 
he went back and read. He says, you know, Dad, your 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 style has really changed a little bit. You're a lot more impressionistic. You you were you know, uh, but I I don't know because I don't go back and read and read them. The only thing that would bring me to read an old book is I'm checking accuracy or something. So once I finish a book, as much as I love doing it, it's surrogate parenting. It's out to the world. I'm finished with it. I'm already on to the next one. Uh, that would be up to a reader to say. I don't know. Well, I'll do that for you. I'm going to go back to the beginning. Okay, I'll let me know, through, Barney. And I'll, I'll shoot you an email and let you know <laughs> okay, how it's let changed. me know. Let me know. You know, one one thing, again, without getting into the, the, the specifics of, of the plot of the book, yeah. um, there's an element that comes through and an important element in the story, again, without giving anything away, of of family relationships. Yeah. And the... Victim, I can say that much without giving anything. Away. <laughs> yeah. His his relationship to his family is is convoluted, to uh, to say the least. And at the same time, again, coming into the series blank, I see the relationship between Alex Delaware, Milo, and the group of detectives that they work with. Um, there's a lot of familial elements in there. And this definition of family is fluid. And so that kind of came through the, the, the juxtaposition between this very strange relationship among family and the family relationship among people that are just not genetically related. And it, it really comes through. And I kind of I kind of caught that. I think it was an interesting um, aspect of the book. That's a great insight. I really appreciate that because I do try to do that. Um, the thing is, I think the emphasis on family comes from my background as a psychologist. My theme is we forget the past at our own peril. Like, like Santayana said, you know, you forget the past, you're going to pay for it, basically. So I, I work with children and families and in a medical setting. And I, I think that has informed the novels. Um, I do try to keep it interesting and without keeping it too, too bizarre, but this is certainly, to say the least, an interesting family. Absolutely. The, the collegial intimate re relationship among the cops is another thing. One thing I've tried to do from the very beginning was avoid cliches. I, I, I worked very hard. Once again, we'll go to the movies. The movie always has cops fighting with each other. The DA is hassling. There's a lot of conflict. Because they don't have enough stories, so they have to pad it with this crap of basically what they think is characterization. You know, give them a limp, make them autistic. It doesn't work that way. Most homicide detectives work very well with their colleagues. Oh, you can't solve a case. It, and there's and the DAs work well. I, I, I've seen them. I I know them. The, the, the reality is all that stuff is Hollywood nonsense. You, you couldn't do anything if you had that level of people making snipe comments about. I once had a guy try to do a screenplay in one of my books, and he had this character just being obnoxious. And I said, why are you doing this? That's not who the character is. You can have harmony among the working people. It doesn't mean there's never a disagreement. But the key is move that story along, solve that case. So, yes, I do attempt. And I think my way is much more realistic, you know what you just said, harmony harmony among the people, even with disagreement. Yeah. Can we apply that to like, oh, the whole country? If only, <laughs> if only. We have lost the ability to be polite and civil and decent. And it's not relegated to one side of the coin. It's 
and I, I blame it on the internet. I don't think people are different. I think most people are reasonable. In the old days, if you were a crazy person, you would have to get a soapbox, stand in the park and scream and yell. Now, you can go on the internet, millions of people hear your nonsense. And I think the old cliche about the squeaky wheel getting all the grease, extremists tend to dominate the conversation. Most of us are not like that. We want to get along. You know, people are basically good. There has been wonderful research on babies showing how altruistic they are. They're not blank, blank slates. Uh, they're altruistic at a very young age. We can mess that up. Animals are altruistic, some. I'll tell you a brief story about my about my dog, who is a rescue dog. She's a uh, mostly poodle, uh, miniature poodle, and she's a genius. I've had eight dogs. She is like, I knew poodles were smart. I never appreciated it until we had her. I have to spell words. Anyway, one day I'm sitting right here at my computer writing a book. Faye was out of town, just me and the dog. Her name is Colette. And she rushes into the office. Oh, you need to go to the bathroom. Okay, great. So I walk her out and I open the door and there was this stray cat that used to come occasionally to us and we'd feed it. And she just stood there because the cat was there and she wanted to make sure I fed the cat. I fed the cat. She was fine. I mean, how do you explain that? So I'm I'm a guy who thinks people are basically good. Yes, we there's an evil side. There's a tough... But it's usually the people in power who are the bad people or psychopaths. Jonathan Swift said in one of my books, I think was Time Bomb, I have a forward from Jonathan Swift, a little quote. And it says, if uh, to, to, to some extent, if all the politicians in the world were on a boat and it sank, it wouldn't make a difference. <laughs> well, with that, <laughs> I'm going to say... I really enjoyed the book. I'm I'm going to go back. I'm going to get back into the series and uh, work my way out. Uh, it's been really a pleasure and a fascinating uh, time speaking with you. I appreciate you taking the time. And again, everybody, it is Jonathan Kellerman. The title is Unnatural History. It's the Alex Delaware series, and I recommend it highly. And this has just been a, a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you, and have a wonderful weekend. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. Join us for the next episode.